Hello, and welcome to the Think Fast podcast. I'm your host, Simon Smith. Fast with two T's stands for focused advancement with speed, tenacity, and transparency. Those are our cultural values at Benchside, where we're using machine learning to help scientists run more successful experiments with the goal of bringing novel medicine to patients 50% faster by 2025. On this episode, I speak with Iran Ben-Ari, who recently joined Benchsci as our Chief Platform Officer. With a background in anthropology, Iran brings a distinctly customer-focused approach to product leadership. He's led product and engineering teams for multiple successful technology companies, including as Chief Product Officer for two of the country's most successful technology startups of the past decade. In this conversation, Aran and I discuss a number of topics of interest to product managers, managers in general, and anyone who's curious about running successful organizations. Hi, Aran, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Super excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. I'm going to start with giving listeners some background on you. And you have an interesting background that starts in anthropology. I remember when we first talked, we were talking about Sapiens, one of my favorite books. Can you tell the story of how you went from an anthropology master's to chief product officer roles and maybe how your anthropology background informs your work? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, so I think today it's much more, uh, I would say, possible for anthropologists to, to be part of the tech industry and, and the startup world. And I think uh, the dots are connecting much more uh, today. But, you know, many years ago when I started my voyage um, or my journey, and so I did pursue an academic career for almost a decade in anthropology. Um, and I think what really hooked me into that world or into that domain um, is trying to better understand how people give meaning to reality, right? And how do they actually like construct reality around them? And, you know, if we just connect the dots there, um, I think when, when I moved into tech, it's how people give meaning to technology, right? And how does technology fit into their broader lives? And I think if you come equipped with that in your toolbox and you have the right methods and right techniques in deciphering all kinds of signals, Perhaps you're also equipped to, to build really good um, products, right? That people adopt. So the journey, you know, started with anthropology. And um, I think at the beginning, it was difficult to move into tech. And people said, hey, you're an anthropologist. So you don't have like a technical degree or you didn't study law or marketing or anything else. But And someone gave me a chance. Uh, and I, I worked really, really hard at the beginning to prove myself. Um, and then I think gradually it became more and more clear that someone with a qualitative research background and, and that also, you know, understands the quantitative side of things. And with those mixed methods, you can actually bring a lot to the table in terms of contribution, right? And so I think that's like, you know, high, high level, the, the journey. And, you know, I've been very fortunate to work for some amazing, with some amazing people and amazing teams and highly successful companies. So most of my career was in Israel before I moved to Canada. Um, and the last three roles before 
um, you know, making this uh, shift to North America um, were companies that were all, you know, acquired. So I went through that acquisition either during my tenure there or right afterwards. Um, and the last one actually was acquired by a Canadian company. And that's why I moved to Canada, spent seven months on an airplane, weekdays in Canada and weekends in Israel with a 12-hour flight back and forth. Mm-hmm. And then I said, enough. And, and they said, no, please come. Um, and I think that's when I, I started really focusing on larger scale uh, organizations. Um, so moving from the smaller startups of 40, 50, maybe 70 people and to over you know, 100, then 150, and then 350 people organizations. Um, and I think that's what I've been doing uh, ever since. Yeah, that that experience of getting on an airplane, I wonder if that would ever happen again, or if we would just immediately have that person working in a more remote role. How did you end up at Benchsai? I think when we first talked, you were uh, not working at that time as a, a chief platform or chief product officer. And you did some work with us, and then uh, you ended up making the transition full-time. So how did you end up at Benchsai? And what made you interested in the opportunity? So I've been following the company for quite a few years, I would say, (laughs) from the outside. And I've been really, really intrigued, um, both in terms of the product and I think really some groundbreaking work that the company has been doing. But even more so, I've been really fascinated with the uh, cultural fabric that has been created, you know, by Liran, the CEO, but also with, you know, everyone, <laughs> leadership and, and people. And I kept hearing really, really good things about um, it's not just the work we do, it's also how we approach doing the work together, right? And, you know, um, you, you probably can't see it because I, I'm wearing a sweater, but I have lots of scars <laughs> of things that failed in the past. And over time, it becomes clear and clear what really, really matters to you, right? As a, as a person, where, where do you want to spend most of your time? And I think, you know, making the choice for me to join Bensai, it's a combination of three things. It's the people, it's the purpose, and it's the potential to drive impact both as a company, but also individually, personally, right? And I think people, everyone I met is super smart and super talented, super nice and very open-minded. So I think that I really appreciated that. And there's a very like collaborative, let's f- figure out how we solve this problem together. And it doesn't matter what the problem is, which I think is, is great, right? That starts with that. Mm-hmm. I think the second is the purpose. Um, the company is really, I think, um, building something groundbreaking in terms of doing something out there in society that can really make an impact that is disproportionate to the number of people working for the company. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think that's, that's something which I, I, I really, really wanted, right? And, you know, my last role as a chief product officer was for an educational technology uh, company that focused on what I termed saving students' lives, especially students at risk. Um, so for me, this, this is really, really important. The last piece is, I think uh, Bensai seems to be at an inflection point, right? Moving from, you know, the flagship product, now diversifying and building new things, um, which I'm not sure I can like really get into detail in this podcast, but building new. And I think the next um, layer of evolution or next step in the evolution also brings with it a set of complexities or challenges that I think I've, I've evidenced and experienced in the past. And hopefully I can really help drive towards a successful outcome. 
Those are great reasons. I want to come back. You raised a, a topic in my mind that I didn't have on my list, but I, I do hope we have time to talk about company culture in relation to your understanding of anthropology and what makes societies and companies successful. I think you'd have some unique insights into that, but I'm going to put that one on the back burner because I have a list, as you know, about <laughs> 10 or 15 questions. So the the next one I wanted to ask you about is you you came from Benchside. You talked about the, the background that you have. You've had a very diverse uh, ex- work experience in addition to your academic career, but you haven't had a lot of experience in life science or biology. And some people shy away from working at Benchside because of how focused we are on life sciences, but you didn't. Why didn't you? And and why do you think that people can be successful at Benchside without having a strong background in biological sciences? So I'll start with a very, I think, general guiding principle. I, I think a diversity of background and diversity of opinion truly delivers or, or creates, I think, excellent outcomes, right? Um, and it, it, it really starts, I think, you know, even in, when you go into a meeting, how do you make sure that the introverts in the room actually speak up, right? And that's, that's like a very tiny micro example, but I think it spans also across to, if you look at, you know, diversity in leadership, right? If it's, you know, underrepresented populations or gender equality, but also I think your, your background in terms of your professional um, opportunities or professional experience. Now, look, if I had a biology background, that'd be amazing. It would definitely help my ramp up. But I also think that's not my role. And I think we have amazing scientists already working uh, for Bensa, right? And it starts, you know, Tom as a founder of the company and perhaps others and Cass, who's an amazing leader. And then also we have many, many scientists, you know, in CS and the science team and R&D, right? So I think we have the the right people to continue to lead from a science perspective and point of view. My role is more of being a facilitator. My role is more of being a translator, right? It's bringing people from diverse backgrounds together to like successfully work and, you know, making sure that, you know, the translation exercise, for example, between data engineering and science, Mm -hmm. right, is working really, really well. And I think, you know, as an anthropologist, that's my bread and butter, right? It's, It's those, you know, how do you create those like shared meanings? How do you create that right vocabulary, right? And the right practices and rituals to make sure that we are all creating a sum that is larger than its parts. Mm -hmm. People outside the company might not realize how many moving pieces there are to get everything done from the ingesting the data and running the machine learning over the data to producing the outputs in some sort of structure that can be utilized by the platform team. And I mean, there's a lot of moving parts. I want to switch gears and talk about, get into our our core values of uh, focus advancement with speed, tenacity, and transparency. And we'll start with focus because that's the first one in our, <laughs> in our FAST acronym, but also because I think it's probably the, the pillar or, the, or the, the most important aspect of, of product management. Now, I am sure like you have been in companies where the product development was not focused and often was driven by whims of the CEO. And so you would constantly 
oh, there's an opportunity here. Let's build this feature now. I know we were working on that, but this is more important. And then inevitably it just, you know, the energy gets diffused and, and you don't move in a straight line and, and I don't think you're as successful. So, and that doesn't happen at Benchside, thank goodness. But I wanted to put forward a maybe an obvious question to start, uh, but why is focus so critical for product management? And have you had any experiences where lack of focus significantly undermined a company's success? So yes and yes. <laughs> um, I think, you know, focus is so fundamental to product manager because product management at the end of the day is trying to synthesize, right? And to balance between, you know, the business viability, customer desirability, and the technical feasibility, right? And the focus is the, is the intersection of these three points and making sure that you're actually like really on target. If you only build things that are, you know, technically, you know, amazing, but you can't sell it or you can't monetize it or customers don't really want it. That's a really big problem. Right. And the same goes to the other two extremes. Right. If you're just slapping, you know, a business model because, you know, out of a spreadsheet, it makes sense. Then and but customers don't buy it. Right. Or it's like impossible to really like um, implement from a technology perspective. At the end of the day, you're not building a successful product. Right. And I think that's why focus is so fundamental. It's finding that really sweet spot, which is difficult and challenging. And it's a moving target. Right. It's not something that is stagnant. Um, so I think that's like, you know, high level. That's why focus is so, so important. Um, I, th I think there's a, another layer below it, which is when you go into a room and you work with a cross-functional team and each one is pulling towards their own direction because they're seeing it from their own perspective is how can you be a forcing function to actually say, okay, I hear you, right? But we need to um, move in this or that direction and connect the dots between, you know, the here and now and how this actually then also move the company, right? Uh, in the right direction when we look at the macro level KPIs, right? And I think that's another second almost like type mm -hmm. of focus, right? That is really, really important. Um, and the third is, and this is I've seen, I've seen a tendency, many people focus on incrementalism mm -hmm. <laughs> just because it's very tangible, right? Mm -hmm. I see something that already exists, right? And I see something that, you know, may necessitate, you know, improvement, but they miss out on the big picture, right? Um, and then you end up doing a lot of tiny little things that don't add up to create something so groundbreaking or so fundamental and so big. Now, I'm not saying optimization is not important. I'm saying optimization is absolutely important, but you need to understand when it is important and when to deploy it and then have strike a right balance between innovation and optimization, right? So I think that's another third type of focus. I've evidenced multiple times when there's lack of focus or the source of innovation or the source of optimization is for the wrong reasons. I'll give two extreme examples. One, as you mentioned, right, it's the the CEO, the hippo, the highest paid person, mm -hmm. you know, opinion. Why? Because they said so. Now, sometimes CEOs do have a very deep understanding of the market. So I'm not saying that all CEOs are, right, should not be, right? But sometimes they're far detached and because they had this phone call with some, you know, random customer um, that was complaining, then we need, you know, the company needs to build something. And that's a very, very high cost, not only in terms of the resources that go into the building, but also because then you need to maintain it over time. And there's a total mm -hmm. cost of ownership that you know, comes down. So 
yeah, I hope that that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, I, I won't ask you to go into too many specifics on the examples. We don't need to call anybody out, but I think we've all seen that. You talked in, in your discussion there of focus, you mentioned that one of the ways you keep product teams focused and aligned is by giving them the, the big picture vision. So then they can understand what they're working towards. What are some of the other ways, maybe a couple more ways that you've discovered through your career help to keep teams focused for, and from getting too diffuse with their activities and also, I guess, aligned at the same time around the same focus? There is something about, I think, the repetition, right? Or um, constantly reminding ourselves, what are we doing and why we're doing it, right? And um, I really like the narrative form of creating alignment, and uh, which means, you know, every team, every cross-functional team, I usually ask them, can you just write a one-pager? Mm. The, you know, as if, you know, you need to explain this to the world, right? To your grandmother, what are you actually doing, right? Um, and then I also ask them, you know, every week, when they have their weekly meeting, start by, again, just very simple, very simply, can you just play out, okay, here are the top three points why we're doing this and what are we doing? I think that creates a lot of focus. The second thing, um, I, I try to shield teams from, I would say, interruptions. <laughs> yeah. So building the right processes that on the one hand can, you know, when we call interruptions, it's not, many times it's not interruptions. It's, it's really important, urgent things we need to attend to, but it doesn't mean that we necessarily have to interrupt a team or a particular team when they're actually, you know, getting to momentum. So how do you have enough, I would say, capacity and resourcing on an organizational level to still, you know, provide the right remedy without, you know, switch, context switching the, the team from one focus to another? So I think that's like a, a second layer of how do, do you create the focus? Um, I think the third is I, I try to be data-driven in my approach. Um, so being conscious of... Um, I would say focusing or defocusing um, almost like equilibrium over time uh, of a team. And many times it's just a self-reported metric, right? Um, if you use an OKR, for example, it's the confidence in the OKR as it is you know, self-reported over a quarter, you can start identifying trends why it drops. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sometimes you hit a complexity in terms of the technical side of things. Sometimes, oh, what we thought about that the customer actually wants, they actually want something which is, I don't know, seven degrees south of that um, or something else. And I think having that and then also spending time with the team, identifying those patterns makes the next quarter more focused a little bit, right? And if you do that habitually over time, they become more and more focused, right? Faster and faster, identify those so-called non-focusing you know, events, and they know how to provide remedies to them earlier on. Mm -hmm. That's actually what's going to be one of my questions about how you, how you develop that habit in people to be more focused. I want to come to that and talk a little bit more about it in a second. But before we go there, you mentioned inevitably as you are focused, things come up because the market isn't static. So what you thought about at the beginning of the quarter as being your absolute priority, something comes up inevitably, as you know, and then you need to address it. Also, sometimes people just have a great idea and that idea may not align with the team's current focus. So how do you 
keep people focused on what was important, let's say at the beginning of a quarter, but also make sure that you don't miss out on really big opportunities or risks or undermine people's for enthusiasm because when they come up with a great idea in the middle of a quarter, you have to put it on ice at least for you know half half a quarter. So how do you manage that in a way that you can maintain momentum, but you don't undermine motivation and you also don't miss out on big opportunities that might be time sensitive? I think that's a great question. Um, so first of all, I think you know ideas are many times there are solutions, right? People would, I have a great idea. I'll give you an example from the past. Um, when I worked in one of the last companies, one of the product managers approached me again, mid quarter and said, I have an idea for a new report that we can send all professors um, and it will highlight students at risk. And that's a solution, right? So the first question I asked is, what is the problem? What is the unmet need that you're mm -hmm. trying to satisfy? Now, the moment you start having a conversation less about the solution, but more on the problem space, things become really interesting. Right, because one one is this may actually be a permutation of what the team is already working on, so you can actually show that this is an evolution, and sometimes you actually incorporate that into the the quarter. Right, maybe you can run a really fast prototype or something else. When it doesn't, maybe it actually says, "Look, what we knew at the beginning of the quarter when we set the OKRs, there is an unmet need that is higher in priority. Let's follow through on this quarter, but we need to change priorities for next quarter." Now, what that actually means or that signals back to the product manager, A, that the organization is listening, right? And with additional information, you're actually willing to make, you know, strategic decisions around priorities, which I think is great, right? And so I think every time I, I hear great ideas, I try to understand the lineage of that idea and to tie it back to what is the needs that you're trying to satisfy and what is the problem or pain point you're actually trying to solve and then based on the answer, and as, as we do the archaeology of that solution, then I think we, we then know what is the right way to approach it. But I think mm -hmm. what is really, really important is to close the loop and encourage people to continue to right, uh, add and, and share their ideas, because I think some amazing things you know, come up with you know, from these you know, instances of ideation that is sporadic, right? But they mm -hmm. actually, you know, many times they are just diamonds in the rough. Yeah, I think the key point is to which you raise is you have to be able to record them somewhere, even if you're not telling people you're going to act on them right away. Simply saying, great idea, we're going to put that down and we're going to prioritize it as part of a backlog. People recognize it. Okay. And then you have to follow through, obviously. Yes. You can't just have a backlog of a thousand items that you've never looked at. But the act of doing that says that we value this, even if we can't act on it immediately. You had mentioned that one of the ways you help your team focus habitually is to really through repetition to talk about uh, what the, what the focus is for the business repeatedly. What are some other ways to develop the habit of being focused in teams? And I'm thinking here specifically about how managers at BenchSign elsewhere can encourage people to improve their focus. I think you know. At least from my, my experience, many managers, a lot of them are focused on just learning the craft of management, at least at the beginning. And many of them also focus on a lot of the administrative work associated mm. with managing, right? So keeping yourself focused is difficult in the first place. And I think our role as, as more experienced leaders 
is to help them get over that hump and automate as much as possible the administrative side of things in management so they can actually have more time and mental bandwidth to focus themselves and as a result also focus their teams. So I think that you mentioned managers, so I think that's one thing. In terms of, of a team, I think having very, very clear goals and very clear boundaries around what falls into those goals and what doesn't fall into those goals or what, what is outside or inside, right? And having, equipping the teams with the criteria to define that, I think is really, really important. Um, so I think, and you know, from everything that I evidence at Benchside is really, I think the company is really good at doing that. Um, also, everything ties into a long, longer term, big, audacious goal, right? Which I also know that, you know, Benchside definitely has, which I think is very, very helpful. But it's also starting to build um, a focusing criteria on a team level, right? And different people, um, within the team will over-index on different things based on their position and based on their personality, right? We need to almost like, you know, go through the, you know, storming, forming, norming, right? Um, phases of a team that they create a collective criteria around how do you make decisions of um, this is the most important thing. We can tell a good story and it's tied right to ourselves, first of all, and then also articulate that to others. And now the team has very clear, you know, directions on where to actually lead to. So I think that's like on the team level. Organization level, um, especially I think, you know, as we start shifting um, to a, you know, a larger ecosystem of, of products, it's really, really important that the, above the manager, the director level and the VP level, start clearing, right, the barriers at the field contextually and um, like a quarter ahead. So if the team is focused on the next sprint, on the next two weeks, the director is already focusing on the next month and the next mm. quarter, right, and the VP is focused on the next six months. So a lot of the groundwork that they're actually doing is making sure that when the team actually gets to that point of execution, planning, execution, mm -hmm. discovery, iteration, whatever it is, a lot of the things that they could have, you know, faced as barriers, obstacles, challenges, ambiguity is already cleared out of their way. And I think it's our role to, to help them and get the entire right organization into that cadence. So the execution is like crystal clear and very, very focused. I like, it's a great way to think about seniority, the time horizon uh, about you, which you need to be thinking is should, there should be different time horizons for different levels of an organization. I think that's an important point that's often missed. People often think about the scope of responsibility, but there's also the scope of time. What is the amount of exactly. the, the time horizon that you should be thinking about? I want to pivot now to talk a bit about this concept of advancement, which at Benchside really means progressing and, and growing both individually and, and as an organization. And to start this off, I want to ask in your experience, what the best sources are for ideas for new products and features. And I, we can really, or the, there's probably two main ways. You know, one is let's say that the Steve Jobs innovation way where we don't ask people in theory, that's not true, but we don't ask people what they want. If we <laughs> ask them, what, or the Henry Ford, if we ask the people what they want, they'd say a faster horse. 
there's the, the top down. I know what people want. I'm going to create this amazing thing and everyone will love it. And then there's the more bottom up way, which is ask the customers. They'll tell you what they want, build what they want, and they'll pay for it. And those are really, I would say that you'd know better than me, but the two general areas. In your experience, what are the best sources of inspiration for new products and features that people actually adopt? So I'm very biased because I'm, a, I'm an anthropologist, right? So mm-hmm. I start with what, what's out there, right? Um, and I try very, 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 I try very much not to come up with an idea that is detached from what I hear, right? From customers and others. Um, but that's because I'm biased. And I also think this increases the odds for success because it's rooted in something, right? And there's a whole question around how do you really decipher the different signals from customers and don't end up just building a faster horse, but actually focus on needs. I think there's a whole right discussion to have there. But if you had to ask me, I think there are three sources. Um, one is customers. The second is business models. And I actually think the third is comparables. Um, mm-hmm. So customers, I, I truly believe in doing continuous discovery, and that is discovery. It's a lot, doing a lot of generative research in understanding the pain points and how your how you know the entire spectrum of technologies, tools, solutions that they have in place, actually you know coexist, or maybe they don't coexist, right? And how does your technology actually fit into that? And is there an opportunity for you to you know broaden and and go left, right, up, down? and expand your reach and perhaps even replace some of other tools that actually exist there. And so I think I, I truly believe in doing a lot of that research on an ongoing basis. So what, one of my emphasis is always speak with the customer, right? And mm-hmm. it's not asking them about a solution. It's more asking about the, the pain points. Um, the second, which is, I think, you know, business models. So uh, if you, you open one of the, you know, Hacker Noon and, or, you know, TechCrunch, you know, it's all about PLG these days, right? The product-led growth. So, and, and I, I don't think this is like a new concept, <laughs> but, but it has a new naming, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, think, I think this is an example of if you take multiple business models and apply them to your company, your product, your business, you may end up identifying opportunities, right? To create more value for your customers, right? And the business model and how it fits together with your offering Something creates magical things, right? As outcomes. So I think I think business models in general is very interesting. And you know, many years ago it was the SaaS, and oh, suddenly we can deliver on an ongoing basis a lot of value, right, from the cloud, right? And that's that's part of the offering, but the cost is remaining uh, small or stagnant, right? And that's that was the big. And PLG is you know how do we actually merge together? I think marketing and product in a way that almost like creates the product experience as the main uh, differentiator or as the main hook for a customer to then, you know, move into a, a paid experience within your product, right? I think applying multiple lenses when you think about new products um, can really help um, understand and identify where the opportunities and come up with better ways to package things and, you know, even emphasis on what to develop first and what not to develop first. And the last piece is just comparables, right? Um, so in many of the companies that I worked with, what I try to do together with the technical folks and together with the product people, and I think at Bensa also with the scientists is, let's take a, a step back and try to abstract 
what are we trying to do here at Bensai? What is the motion, right? And I think what we're doing is data, data extraction, right? That a lot of what we're doing is data extraction and then transformation, and then we're delivering it back to customers. We're not the first <laughs> company to do so, right? We are, I think, one of the best companies to do so with this particular data set, which is highly complex. So how can we learn from those comparables, uh, right? Where, you know, the maturity of artificial intelligence is maybe five years ahead of us, if it's the legal space or domain, right? Mm -hmm. And there's some really amazing companies doing some groundbreaking uh, work there. So I think comparables is probably the third source of um, innovation or ideas around, okay, they already solved this big challenge and, you know, it's not the same data types, but there's something, there's some gen general learnings we can generate and, oh, maybe we should focus on this or that in the way we approach some of the problems we're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are, are great. And it triggered a couple of things in my mind. The first one was around product-led growth and whether this is new. And I, my first startup I worked at was in 2000, so right in a dot-com boom. And at the time, everybody was talking about Hotmail and the little the little the little text they embedded at the end of every email to say if you want free email go to hotmail.com and they would talk about it as virality built into it. and i think some of the product led growth discussion is just an evolution of what we've seen be successful where products have growth baked into their usage some of it's a little bit innovative uh, the other comment is there's a someone i forget where i heard this but this idea that that you should imitate before you innovate. And smart people, really smart people tend to jump straight to innovation because they wanna be original and they wanna do something unique that's never been done before. But almost by definition, like with evolution, most evolution hits a dead end because the, it, in some way, anything you can do to a creature that's successfully adapted to an environment is more likely to be unsuccessful than successful. And, uh, and so most you know, net new innovations are likely to be unsuccessful. But first, if you imitate and then make a slight modification there, you can have great success. So I agree with, with both of those. Now that said, I wanna move on to some, or return to something you mentioned earlier and give it a little bit more attention. You, you talked about this idea of not just making incremental improvements or optimizations that yes, those are important, but you also have to take risks and and go big sometimes or often. How do you balance that investment when you're sitting down and looking at different things that you can invest your always limited resources in? How do you decide what proportion of your resources to invest in big risky products and features versus more incremental improvements and optimizations? So I think it really depends. <laughs> and that's probably not a nice answer, right? I'm sorry for that. It depends on where the company is, how many customers are we trying to like really attract and retain? And um, what's the level of maturity of our product offering? Um, it depends on many, many different things. Look, I think there, there are frameworks out there and you know, there's the 70, 20, 10 uh, framework, right? Uh, which is like, you know, 10 is for the moonshots, right? The 70 is uh, you focus on primarily, I would say business as usual and optimization and 20 is anywhere in between, right? Um, so I think that's that's a good guiding principle at the beginning, but then I think you need to deeply understand the business <laughs> and to see if it's more of a 50% or maybe you know 40% instead of 70%. And the others also also change. And where are you in terms of your um, 
maturity as a company as well. And I think the, the key variables that I would look at is how big is your market? <laughs> What's the average uh, deal size of a customer, right? If it's going to be thousands, so it's going to be millions. It's really, right? Suddenly you need to optimize very, right? Differently, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I think that's, that's one element. The second is in terms of um, the ability to capture more market share through your existing offering. <laughs> versus you need more products to satisfy and then start to expand to additional uh, markets or expand your reach within the existing market. So I think that's another layer or level around that. Then I would also start focusing on the customer, right? And customer in the sense of um, what's their engagement? What's their retention? Um, when you look at the users and maybe the buyer and the user are not the same, and do we actually have the users in place? And if they're not coming to the platform, then there may be an adoption issue. So you need to start, when you say optimization, maybe you're optimizing the ability for people to get to that aha moment very, very quickly or easily, right? Throughout their, their journey. So that may fall into the bucket of, so I think start looking at the you know, KPIs that actually manage that. And then I think there's another level of optimization, which has to do with all kinds of debts. Right, um, and it's uh, the ability of the team to move fast, and that can be technical debt, but also there's you know UX debt and there's analytics debt, right, and and you need to pay back that debt because like any debt, there's a negative compounding effect if you don't deal with it early enough, right? So I think that's another level of between just building the new shiny thing and just optimizing and making sure your basics are covered. Um, and, uh, you know, it's always a question. And I think it's something that needs to be revisited absolutely on a quarterly basis, uh, but also in long-term planning around annual and, you know, five years ahead. Mm -hmm. And that, that, I think that's a good, good context for the bigger decisions. I mean, obviously it's going to depend on your business model, your customer base and so on. Do you also have a framework that, is a go-to framework for you when prioritizing more granular ideas and issues. So let's say even features or, or products. For example, I've used impact effort or impact confidence effort. Do you have an approach to prioritization that you find particularly useful? Or do you do it more around something more ambiguous like story points and then ranking things around story points in sprints. What's your approach or preferred approach to prioritizing products and features? So, so I think, I think what, what you're asking the question is really, really interesting when you said it's more on a granular level, right? And mm. I think in my role, I'm less on the granular level. And that's why I, I really try um, to make sure that I'm empowering my teams to pick whatever framework makes the most sense to them. That mm. said, um, there, there has to be one really important ingredient, right? Um, in that um, prioritization exercise. And I think it's the customer. How do we make sure that we're creating a ton of value to customers, right? When we're prioritizing, right? Um, and if you wanna pick a RICE or an ICE, right? Which is like reach, impact, confidence, effort, or an abbreviation of that, um, that that's great. If you wanna use opportunity trees, that's also fine. And I think there are probably like, you know, five or six frameworks that are running around, depending on which team you ask. And as long as they're, I think, prioritizing according to the right criteria and it's aligned with our strategic path, um, I think it's fine. Um, I usually use Rice. I just like it. And it's very, very easy for me to do that. Um, but I also think, you know, as we continue 
and evolve over time. I've seen some very interesting advancements in rice. For example, confidence. Um, there's a great, great um, product thinker. I call him product thinker called Itamar Gilad, and he developed a confidence meter where he actually takes the, the, the confidence, actually breaks it down into, I think it's eight or, or nine different components and allows the teams not to like have multiple, even conflicting uh, ways to, de- to define what's your confidence level, but actually become much more evidence-based mm-hmm. um, before you actually push a, an idea moving forward. So I think the level of sophistication and maturity is increasing over time. Um, but my guiding, again, my guiding principle, let's make sure we're creating a ton of value for, for customers, um, right? And then let's talk about how you actually think about implementing the framework of your choice on your team. Yeah, and you mentioned as well, making sure that you're pushing down those decisions to the people who are as close to the customer as possible. I've experimented with all kinds of frameworks in my life. And I, I think my potentially heretical position, and I'm not a product manager or I don't head a product team. So take this with a grain of salt is I think you actually know, and then you try to rationalize it by giving these frameworks to quantify it. I I think if you sat down with most people on a team, if they really knew the customer and the resources on their team and what it takes to do different things, and you ask them, what are the top three things we should focus on? They should know without even having to sit down and prioritize it with numbers. And then I feel like you do the numbers exercise almost to rationalize what you, you know, you already feel typically in my experience, because I've, I've done it the other way where you have like a board of 50 things that you could potentially do and you start giving them all numbers. This is the potential impact effort. And in the end, you, you would have probably picked the top three to, to five things anyway, even if you had never done that entire exercise. Tell me if I'm wrong, but that's been, been my experience. I, yeah, so I think, I think I, I've seen that. Uh, but I also, I also think that people fall in love with their own ideas true. <laughs> that's true. On, on product teams, right? And, and that could be very dangerous. And that's why, mm-hmm. especially, you know, the, the meter that I just mentioned, the con- confidence meter, almost like pushes you away from, you know, your own ideas. And if, mm-hmm. if, if it's because you feel something and sometimes intuition is, is strong, go out and, you know, what's the cheapest way to validate your hypothesis, right? I agree with and, that, definitely. Right, so absolutely, yeah. I agree with you, but um, I think, you know, some people are starting to now say, okay, we need to break through this because otherwise, why should we even, you know, spend any time prioritizing if we already know the answer? Yeah, and I, wasn't, I wouldn't say an individual. I, I think it would be more a group of diverse of people, different perspectives. Let's, we could spend a lot of time here because I think this is an, <laughs> an interesting discussion. Maybe this will be a follow-up podcast episode, but I, I do want to make sure that we have time to cover all the values and I want to talk a bit about speed. So I actually want to start talking about speed by talking about lack of speed. What <laughs> slows a team down from your perspective and what speeds it up? And maybe this is a good time. I have another question here around team size, but let's just roll this into the current conversation. So what slows a team down? What speeds it up? And in that, let's touch a bit on team size and structure. Okay, so first of all, I think there's a very big difference between operational speed and strategic Mm -hmm. speed. And I think operational speed is how do we optimize for outputs? It's we do a bunch of activities. How do we make sure that those activities are as efficient as possible? It's taking us less and less time to create whatever we need to create, right? And I think that's operational speed and it's important in itself. 
But I also think there's strategic speed, which is how, what's the time it takes us, the round trip to create value to customers, right? And our activities may or may not lead to value to customers. And many times it's assumed that once we finish the activities, then the value is there. And, and you know, as companies mature and um, product offerings become more complex, and also the low-hanging fruit already were attended to, they were built, right? Whereas there's low effort and high impact, you get to a point where there is high effort and high impact, right? And that actually necessitates much more of the uh, latter, the focus on the strategic um, speed rather than the operational speed. You need the time to reflect, you need the time to optimize, you need the time to really deeply understand the nuances around your implementation and your solution delivery to really deliver a ton of value to, to customers and it's becoming more and more difficult, right? So mm -hmm. I think that's like a general uh, statement around, around speed. I think there are um, two types of barriers in terms of um, what's holding pe teams back. I think there are some self-imposed barriers and I think there's some environmental barriers. The environmental barriers we discussed a little bit before when I, I actually think that, you know, uh, the, the manager level, then the director level, then the VP level, a big part of their role is to attend to those environmental barriers. It's lack of clear direction. It's ambiguity in terms of the problem space. It's not having enough resources, right, to actually like really tackle the problem with the timeline associated if it's a, you know, under contract with a customer. It's a bunch of those and we can probably continue that list. I think there's a second one, which is a self-imposed barrier and i've seen that again repeatedly um, it can be your psychological state it's the you know not having enough psychological safety it's not um it's having imposter syndrome it's being afraid to you know pushing yourself to be in the spotlight so to speak right um, and taking a big risk that may also have a big reward because you want to play it safe and, and i think each one of these again i think you know us as leaders we have an absolute obligation to attend to both of them. And at any given point in time, both of them exist <laughs> to certain extent on the team level. And it's our, it's our ability to identify that, have those conversations with the individuals leading the team, right? To make sure that, you know, we are equipping them with the um, both um, self, I would say, awareness and confidence and be there, you know, um, helping from the back <laughs> mm -hmm. to push in the right direction, but also making sure that we are, you know, ahead of the potential barriers environmentally that may hold them back in executing at, you know, you know, speed. Yeah. So I, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> you, that, that, that does. It's a couple of things that came up there. I think one is this concept of efficiency versus effectiveness. And you can be very efficient at executing the absolute wrong thing or the <laughs> thing that's not going to drive the, the most impact. And I think the other one is, uh, so I used to be someone who was very much focused on process and automation in order to make teams move faster. And over time, rightfully or wrongfully, where I am right now, and based on success I've seen at other companies like Netflix and so on, is more about, no, the real way to move fast is to hire superstars, give them autonomy, and give them the best context possible to make the right decisions and take actions fast and trust them to be adults. And I think that that's a big part of our value system at Benchside. 
And I also want to be con- conscious of the time here. I'm going to, we got about 10 minutes left and I'm going to be very judicious here in my choice <laughs> of questions. So I want to move into tenacity. One of the things that can come up with working at a startup that is pushing really hard and moving really fast is on product teams in particular, burnout and disengagement. What are some of the things that you think drive that? Is it simply workload? Are there other factors? And then how do you successfully maintain engagement and avoid burnout on a team that's moving fast? So I think there are different root causes for burnout. (laughs) So again, spending time and deeply understanding what's behind that um, is really helpful in, in dealing with it. The first one is just being aware. <laughs> we all need to maintain work-life balance and work is, especially in a startup, especially in a startup that is, you know, in hyper growth, um, there's always work to be done, right? So how do you find the right balance between, you know, everything that needs to get done, ruthless prioritization, over-communicating what's not being prioritized, um, and also asking for help right? And saying, I need more capacity. And many times people take extreme ownership, um, which is, I think, negative by saying, look, I can deal with it. Just give me more. Just give me more, right? As part of trying to, instead of saying, I need to do less, (laughs) but do it flawlessly. And it's absolutely fine to have a peer right next to me that will take, you know, half of my workload. And I think it's it's detaching your self-worth from the, you know, the volume of work you're actually doing, <laughs> which I think is very difficult, especially for high achievers. And so I think us, again, as leaders, we need to, to say the two are not correlated. Yes, do your work and do it great. And so I think that's like one thing. The, the second is people I've seen tend not to take time off. And mm-hmm. it's not even their work-life balance. It's just time off. And and, you know, I had a conversation with, you know, some people at Bensai already, and I said, okay, if, if we look from now until the end of 2021, when is our next big peak, right, from engineering? And they gave me a couple of months. And I said, okay, did you actually speak with your engineering managers for the team to take time off before we reached that peak? And then that person said, oh, no, I didn't think about that, but that's a great idea. So again, how do we plan ahead? Because certain things we cannot anticipate, <laughs> but certain things we can absolutely anticipate. And we need to make sure that, you know, the teams are, you know, we are pushing them to take good care of themselves. So I think that's like a second uh, level. The third, a burnout uh, on the third level, I think is just, um, if it's mentally draining to show up to work, then there's something wrong in the environment for you. It's either you're not in the right position <laughs> or you're too stretched in terms of your role, right? Or there's something toxic in the interactions you're having with the people around you. And again, I, I ask everyone, please talk and reach out. But I think there's a more of a um, obligation for managers to identify that. And that's through one-on-ones, it's through all kinds of engagement signals, um, understanding you know, all kinds of trends and being very sensitive to that as well. Because I think if people come and enjoy work and they feel appreciated and respect and there's purpose in their work, um, right? Um, there'll be less burnout from that aspect as well. Yeah, I think 
this topic is probably, especially during the pandemic, become something that a lot more people are talking about. I think part of the problem is that we have in our society, we give people high status if they say that they're really busy. And so a lot of people see that as a, a status. Oh, I'm so busy. I must be important. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. And if somebody said to you, no, I'm not that busy, you'd be like, oh, that person maybe isn't very in demand or valuable. But then you look at the best performing people in society, the best musicians, the best athletes, and they're not killing it eight to 10 hours a day. They would, no athlete would be able to be successful. They're pushing themselves for a period of time and then giving themselves lots of rest to be able to recover. And then they push themselves again. And so rest is just as important to high performance, but nobody, or we don't talk about that as much. So I think opening up that conversation and making it okay to say, no, I'm operating at a pretty good level and I'm happy and I don't feel like I'm pushing myself too hard. And that's actually fine if you're delivering results and you don't want to be burning yourself out. So I think that's worth opening up that conversation. Okay. A couple more questions before we, uh, just, close just before out. that sorry, I just, yeah, yeah. Thank- so I didn't want to uh, close that off. No, no, fine. I, I just want to say, thank you for saying that. Um, me personally, I think I pushed myself many, many years way too hard. Right. Mm. And it took me many, many years to realize that I need time to rest and time to rejuvenate. Um, and it's difficult and it's challenging. It's not right. It's not easy to say I'm in between jobs and I'm taking three months off. Yeah. Right. For example, or within a job to say, look, I need a week, right. That I'm going to completely disconnect from everything. That's really, really difficult because you feel an immense, you know, ownership and responsibility towards the people that work with you and towards the, the craft. And, and, but, but it takes a lot of self-training. So thank you for opening up this really important conversation. And I would love to talk to keep the conversation going and I'll be talking to other people about it as well, because ultimately we're hurting people and we're hurting performance. Like it doesn't do anybody any good, but it's become, you're an anthropologist, you know this better than I do, just a cultural value and a cultural yes. norm, but a harmful, a very harmful one to the individual and, and to performance and productivity and all that. Last couple of questions for you. I mean, I would love to keep going, but I, I have to respect <laughs> your time and I don't know how long listeners want to hear us go on and on about this. So Transparency, this last of our values here. We talked about the importance of autonomy and context. So you hire amazing people, give them autonomy, give them sufficient context. But one of the things we struggle with at BenchSci, and I'm sure a lot of other startups do as well, is information overload. So you want to give people a lot of context, the right context, but then you risk overwhelming them with information and distractions and emails and Slack messages and notifications. How do you strike a balance? between giving context and not overwhelming people with information? Fantastic question. Um, the short answer is I, I, I really, really try to focus as much as possible on people to be um, context seekers. And I think what, what I observed many times is the companies, they push a lot of context downwards, hmm. um, which at, at times makes sense. But at times, it's not in the right format. It's not in the right timing. It's not in the right way that it's being packaged. And, and that's why I push people to seek out context uh, proactively because it's when they need it and when they know it's missing and they know what they're looking for. Now, again, I think there's a very big difference from you know, someone that, you know, just came out of school and it's their first job or first role, I don't expect them 
to really know when they need to seek context. But if it, this is someone who's been working for a company for quite some time and is becoming more and more senior, I would also expect them to say, look, I think here are the key four questions that we need to ask. Two of them we can't answer right now. We need to seek context before we move forward with this. And that almost like, I think, changes the dynamic because suddenly you don't need a lot of synchronous meetings where you're bombarding everyone with lots of context, but rather people are starting to seek out that context. And I think, you know, there are all kinds of tools out there that provide more and more context. I think we are using one of them at Bensai, Guru, for example, to mm -hmm. reach out to context. But I also think it's on us. Um, and I'll give one, one very short example. I, I use what I call 15.5, not the tool, but as a technique. And it's a basically a very long Google Doc um, where every week or every two weeks depends, um, I write strategic context. Now, it's updated every, every week or two, but also started to be annotated based on specific um, keywords. So people can search for the context once they, they look for it. Now, it should take no more than 15 minutes to write and five minutes to consume every mm -hmm. weekly or biweekly instance. But it pushes down a lot of context. Many times it's easy enough to consume. People understand. They get a, like a general and they almost like index this in their minds and say, okay, next time I suddenly the, the dots connect. So <laughs> building all those like knowledge bases and really focusing on become a context seeker, I think then they say, okay, I need to go this, I need to go there. This is the right tool. And it starts mm. to become almost like a norm within a culture. Right. Yeah, information is much more valuable when it has utility, and that'll happen if you need to exactly. pull the context. I have a question about your 15.5. So how, what is that you will write up every week, just some information that related to the business as a whole, that's the latest context you think that your team needs, and then you send that out to everybody, or they can access it if they need it? It's just really a summary of where the company is at from your perspective and what they need to keep in mind. It started off from a, a, an instance where the company pivoted in one of my previous companies. Mm -hmm. And then my team said, we, we didn't see that coming. That was really, really surprising. We didn't understand. And then I started writing the 15.5 because I said, if I can bring them into, again, in the spirit of transparency, into some of the strategic conversations and discussions, should we go left? Should we go right? Should we go up? Should we go down? Not, not everything, but a lot of it is. And here's some of the things that we're grappling as a leadership as well, right? We don't know what's the right answer right now, but they're almost evidencing the progression and the evolution of the strategy as it unfolds, right? On that very senior leadership level, it really helps them, right? To understand why we're moving then south or east or left or right, right? So that's on the strategic level. But then I started realizing that there's a second layer where teams, especially product teams, they're really, really, really focused, as we said, on what they're focused on. Mm -hmm. But they're not as aware of what's happening in, on other teams. So another layer is just connecting us saying, look, this team and this team, they're working on these things. Here, I, I'm sensing that there may be some dependencies. Or if you need to start connecting dots, and start a conversation between each other. Because you're going to you know, deal with the same codes surface or surface area, whatever it is, right? Or there's some dependencies in terms of deployments. So I think there's a second layer, which is just how do we, again, connect between different teams 
and, and just for people to be aware. And then they, you know, again, seek out that context and speak with whoever needs to be um, conversed with in order to make the right decision moving forward. That's great. I think that's a great habit. I'm going to look into whether that would be valuable for my team. Two more quick questions for you, if you don't mind. One is, was not on my list, but it came up earlier and it's something I think is worth getting your perspective on. We spend a lot of time at Benchsai cultivating our culture. And I just wanted to ask you from an anthropological standpoint, why is culture so important for humans to come together cohesively around solving a problem? What is the role of culture in large groups like companies and how does that relate to their ability to perform? Wow, that's a that's huge a question. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think it necessitates a full podcast um, okay. just to really unpack that. But but I would say that culture is the it's the glue, right, between what's happening in reality and society and culture at large, right, and what I'm sensing as an individual. And if I have culture that is the glue between me and other people, we have a shared common understanding of who we are. How do we relate to each other? Why are we here together? What are we trying to achieve? And how we intend to achieve it together? And that, I think, just down, you know, significantly it decreases the cognitive, mental, psychological effort that is needed in order to, to move forward, right, fast in, in mm -hmm. the, the right direction. So I think that's like a very like short-handed answer. <laughs> okay. we'll but open... we can definitely yeah. open up in a full podcast <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll come back to that at some point last very last question for you and and i i know we're a little bit over here but very last question for you to the extent you can talk about it and i know we have to be car careful about what we're talking about what are you most excited about with the platform at benchsai and generally where the company is going what what gets you most excited right now about the future of benchsai so many companies have many, you know, their own like mission statement. I see a clear path to realize the mission statement that uh, Bensai has set forth. And that is unique and rare. And I think that that is making me so excited and pumped up every day when I wake up and I say, I, great, I can be part of this. Great. And that mission again for everybody, or the, the goal here is to, to bring novel medicine to patients 50% faster by 2025. So that is the, the mission that we're all aligned around or the goal that we're all aligned around. Iran, thank you so much for this time. I appreciate you giving everybody an hour. Uh, fascinating. And we will definitely come back to some of those conversations in future. Amazing. Thank you for, very much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Think Fast podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. To ensure you don't miss any future episodes, subscribe in your favorite podcast player. And if you liked what you heard, maybe you'd be a good fit on our team. Learn about our culture and open roles at careers.benchsci.com. Until next time, stay safe and think fast.